Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of History Hack. The boss lady is off filming at the moment. She tossed me the keys and said, have fun, just don't trash the place. So you've got Charlie with you today and I'm joined by an incredibly special guest. Kate Moss is an award-winning novelist, playwright, essayist and writer of non-fiction. And if this didn't keep her busy enough, Kate is also the founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction, and its new baby sister, the Women's Prize for Nonfiction, both of which champion and empower female authors. So it goes without saying that I'm thrilled to welcome her onto the podcast today. Hello, Kate. How are you? I'm very well, Charlie. Very well indeed. We're so thrilled to have you um, on today, really, um, as a bunch of female authors all in one place at History Hack. Uh, this is a very special um, <laughs> chance to have you. So you're here today to talk to me about your latest book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. It's quite an achievement. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's nearly a thousand women named and so many stories told. So how on earth did you decide who to include and how did you then decide who to leave out? Well, I mean, you. I think the the main thing with any project like this, you know, the the goal of the book and the theatre tour, uh, which is um, I'm just about to embark on a six weeks theatre tour around the UK um, based on the book, um, a show based on the book, is you have to accept that you can't put everybody in. Um, But it's really important in terms of this, which is a love letter to history, but it's also saying we're not taking the brilliant men out, but we are putting all the women back in who deserve to be there, that you will leave many, many, many more people out than you will ever be able to put in. But it's better to put some people back in than nobody. Um, so that was really the spirit in which I went into it and discovered when I was researching the book. And it was partly inspired by a social media campaign I ran, um, asking people just to nominate a woman they wanted to celebrate from history and partly about discovering in lockdown my own family history, that there was kind of a hidden story that I didn't really know much about. And what I discovered out of that was that there were groups of areas, if you like. Um, There were the women of courage, there were the women of faith, the women of science, there were the women of law, the women of entertainment, uh, the women of exploration. And so that became kind of easier 
uh, to clump everybody into sort of uh, different groups. I also realized that there were characteristics in every period of history, in every culture, in every time, words like resilience, stamina, determination. And the book and the tour is called Quiet Revolutionaries as well as Warrior Queens, because many of the people that are most significant are names that we don't know so well, because they have been written out of the history books, all their achievements overlooked. It was an enormous project and getting it down to the stage show has been even worse, but I think I've done it. You definitely have. It's it's almost like a it, it's a book that you can um, pick up and dip into. Uh, I, I binged it in a few days and it, it just absolutely blew my mind. But the fact that these are they're almost mini biographies. Yes. Some women are just there being quoted because I wanted to get as many names in there as possible. And the book and the show are very much for me, the start of a conversation between me and the audience and, and my readers, which is even if a name just appears in passing, then it means that maybe somebody will go and look her up. Because what we need is all the other people doing it. Let's just keep repeating the names because repetition works. You know, we, we've become used to hearing names. You know, I'll offer you someone like Mary Seacole, who was incredibly famous in her day, um, she and Florence Nightingale were equally well known as pioneers in the nursing field. Um, and then Florence Nightingale's legacy and reputation was kind of secured. And we can possibly guess at some of the reasons for that. And Mary Seacole, who was of Jamaican British heritage, she completely vanished, but was brought back to um, public recognition by the work of campaigners in the 20th century. So we know that it works, that other women and men saying, Everybody should know this person. Pay attention, does work. So everybody now knows Mary Seacole. She consistently comes top of the list of the most important black British uh, people. Um, Mary Anning is another example, the fossil hunter. Nobody really remembered her and all of her uh, successes have been attributed to the men who bought the fossils from her. But thanks to, so, you know, we know it works. We know it works. Fantastic. That actually leads us on to um, to talk about the Matilda effect. We talk about women who's who have made um, great achievements in their lives, but haven't been perhaps recognised in the way uh, that they should have been. So this is something that comes up regular as clockwork. Can you tell me about the Matilda effect and what it is? Well, I love this phrase. In fact, I wanted to call the book The Matilda Effect, but my uh, publishers overruled me and said that warrior queens <laughs> and quiet revolutionaries made it very clear what the book was about. So The Matilda Effect is a phrase that was coined by an American science writer, Margaret Rossiter, in the 1990s to explain the routine attribution of the work of female scientists to the men who worked beside them or sometimes even for them. And the, the Matilda in question is the amazing American suffrage, suffrage uh, campaigner and women's rights campaigner, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who wrote an enormous history of women's suffrage. Um, and she was one of the Seneca Falls uh, signatories, which was the kind of Bible of women's suffrage in America. And uh, everybody knows a few of these people, um, but I would offer you Lise Meitner, for example, who uh, did not win the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1943 because it was given to her partner, Otto Hahn, 
who stood as he accepted it and said, this should be going to Lise too. Um, everybody knows that Marie Curie did win Nobel Prize, both in chemistry and in physics, and was the first woman to do so, an extraordinary woman. But the majority of other women scientists have been completely written out of the record, partly because science writing was entirely in the hands of male writers. So you may not know that as far back as 1856, it was a woman, an American again, Eunice Newton Foote, who discovered what we would subsequently come to know greenhouse gases and global warming, 1856. And she had to sit and listen to her paper being presented by the secretary of the American Association because she wasn't allowed to speak. And then because she didn't actually make the link between exactly how it worked. Years later, a man uh, did work out that, and of course that was incredibly important, but didn't credit her at all. And her contributions completely forgotten until very recently when her name has been um, commemorated by a medal um, by the American Science Association. So it's widespread, the, the, the way that women are written out of the historical record. And as I said, it's not about taking men out, it's about putting the women back where they deserve to be. And why wouldn't you, if you love history, why wouldn't you want Exactly, other... exactly. It's 51%. Um, <laughs> let's get Quite. more of this in. So there's a real problem with source material when it comes to women, isn't there? So you've got a historian who wants to go through the archives and research a woman in particular. If she finds anything there at all, there can be all sorts of problems with the contemporary recording of her life. Yes, exactly. It's what real historians, of which I'm not one, I'm just a curious bystander, um, call the silence in the archives. Um, that given the writing of history has predominantly for almost all of world history been in the hands of men, because it has beyond, belonged within religious institutions or universities and women were barred from all of these places until uh, you know, the late 19th century in some cases, although there are exceptions, you know, um, you look in uh, sort of medieval Italy and uh, every, you know, all of those institutions in Bologna and Milan are awash with women doctors and then it all vanishes. So we know that history is a pendulum and women's opportunities go backwards as well as forwards. But broadly speaking, history has been written by men until relatively recently. And consequently, not only are the women often invisible to them, but then evidence of the women's work is not kept in the first place. It is not archived, so therefore it's not there for you and for me and for all the other historians, female and male, to find. So this is a problem. And of course, it leads to why it's so important that women are allowed to write and publish, because without that, their women's voices are silenced or lost or ignored or overlooked. And sometimes it's deliberate. You know, we are seeing that in Afghanistan and Iran uh, particularly at the moment, but there are other countries. Other times it's just benign neglect. They genuinely don't believe that women are doing anything. Or if they do believe women are doing anything, they think it's one exceptional woman, not lots of women. Mm. So this is very uh, typical, you know, that people will say, well, of course there was Joan of Arc, but there was nobody else. Or of <laughs> course there was Emmeline Pankhurst, but there was nobody else. Yeah. Um, there were always many women standing shoulder to shoulder and that lifting up of one woman at the expense of all the others is another way of suggesting that history is made by men and for men 
and it's an aberrant woman who you know puts her toe into the water but we know that isn't true either the, the sort of constant frustration of um, when you find that one woman is that if she must have spoken to other women when there's no correspondence that survives you no. sort of imagine these friendless women like existing throughout history you think no there must have been networks they must have talked to each other they must have hung out they must have laughed together and plotted together well yes and it's also about what is seen as palatable um Mm -hmm. so you know i mentioned mary seacole and florence nightingale now florence nightingale um i i have course included because she was incredibly significant Mm -hmm. despite the fact that her views on race um were really abhorrent frankly and I mean, in her own words, it's not that we are making an interpretation that is different, but that is, that's an important thing, that women's place in history cannot be about likability. We cannot just put women back into history who we approve of, because we see where that leads. Um, you know, that leads to the you know, <laughs> cultural revolution in China. It leads to silencing of many alternative voices. But also, I would say that that is the sanitizing of history as well. So we all know Rosa Parks, and Rosa Parks, of course, is an incredibly entirely significant figure of the, uh, the 20th century. Um, and her contribution to civil rights movement is I- enormous. But there had been many freedom riders before Rosa Parks who were not seen as appropriate poster girls, if you will. So Claudette Colvin, who had been arrested nine months before Rosa Parks, uh, but she was 15 and unmarried and pregnant, and so was not seen as an appropriate figurehead. Going back even further, the great freedom rider, extraordinary woman, Pauli Murray, who in 1944 had been arrested for what's called freedom riding, i.e. not giving up your seat on a bus to a white person who wanted it. Uh, But Pauli Murray described herself as an in-betweener, what we today might call a non-binary person. And she, again, was not seen as an appropriate person. There were too, there was too much complicated in her life. And now this is sensible strategy in one level, but when we talk about the freedom riders, we need to put all of those women shoulder to shoulder, uh, not in any way to take away from Rosa Parks, who really was the person who got it over the line, but we need all of them there because there's all we all stand on the shoulder of giants. It's a hugely interesting book to read because you've made a very conscious effort not to be Anglo-centric, um, introducing the reader to women from all corners of the globe, all colours, nationalities, faiths. Was there someone you found in this process that surprised you? Um, have you found a new hero, someone that we just don't hear about here in the West? Well, thank you for noticing that. I did try and do my best on that. Um, I'm not the right person to speak for all sorts of different cultures and periods of history, but then I'm not the right person to speak for a Scottish doctor. You know, I am not Scottish (laughs) and I'm not a doctor, you know. So you have to be sensible with writing about how you put other people on the page. And it's very important uh, to say that all women in every culture have made a difference. And I actively went out seeking women from other countries, uh, I am hampered by the fact that I only speak and read English and French. So immediately, if things are not translated into either of those languages, I am, I, you know, that they, they are closed to me. Um, but I would, I would say, uh, in the uh, resistance movement in the Second World War, it remains a period of history that is enormously um, 
seductive, if you like, uh, mm. to British people for reasons, again, we might... <laughs> we might suggest that that was the the last of the finest hours and certainly as we speak in 2023 uh, we are not having a very fine hour at the moment um, but that is how history goes and uh, you know countries rise and fall and all of these things but what is very interesting about the story of uh, the resistance is it's enormously weighted towards British or partially British women saving the day and some Americans and what that does is leave out all of the resistance in other countries, in Germany, Sophie Schull and the White Rose, uh, in Russia. Um, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce some of those names, but enormously important. All of the Jewish women who were incredibly involved um, in the resistance. And then further afield, I would say um, the great, this, you know, to answer your question, the person who I'd heard her name but didn't know much about was the great uh, Senadu Gebru in Ethiopia, she was the founder in the end of the Ethiopian Red Cross. Uh, she was in the resistance. She was captured by Mussolini's forces in uh, Addis Ababa and escaped. Uh, she was the first uh, woman to be elected to the Ethiopian parliament in 1957. Um, and she was a writer as well. She wrote in Ambraic as well as uh, um, French. Um, and she was you know, an extraordinary woman. Now, she should be at the heart of any story of the resistance because that is an a woman from Africa, in Africa, resisting the Italian occupation. But we have an over-focus on Europe. But it was a world war. <laughs> so um, I, I would offer you, Senadu Gebro, extraordinary. Fantastic. And again, guys, I can't recommend this book enough. You're going to meet so many incredible women that you've you've never heard of, frankly, and you, you'll be shocked and ashamed that you've never heard of them nobody uh, should be ashamed charlie it's <laughs> it's like it, it's uh, i'm a great believer that change oh, in positive change so no regrets about the people that you hadn't heard of before just passion for them now <laughs> <laughs> I, lo I love that i remember i was talking to um an amazing author helen o'hara about her book women versus hollywood and it's you know all about various women throughout time and the contribution that they've made in, in Hollywood and I said to her you know I, I studied film I've got a film degree and I've not heard of any of these women and I couldn't figure out if it was my fault for not seeking them out or the fact that we're just not taught about them you know I, I could tell you everything about Alfred Hitchcock and tell yeah, you yeah, all yeah. about the great you men know, the authors it's that it's a terrible cliche but it's also true you can't be what you don't see yes and it's the same thing. You can't go looking for people that you don't know exist. Um, but this is why, for me, history is about being curious, just following the, the breadcrumb trail. And you think, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard of her. And now I've never heard of her. And before you know it, there are 10 women that you never heard of. And now you do. So, I, you know, I think travel, hopefully, Charlie. That's, that's, my, <laughs> that's my principle. That's wonderful. I think that's a great motto for anyone. There's a very personal story that runs through your book, that of your great-grandmother, Lily. And the words that you used at, at the end of the book have been haunting me. And you wrote that someone with all her advantages could disappear from the record, highlights how quickly and how easily history can be made and unmade. What did you manage to learn about Lily? Well, my great-grandmother uh, was born in 1849, and she died in 1932. 
Um, I'm, I'm fingers crossed that I follow in the pattern. All the women in our family seem to live a long time, uh, which is great. Um, <laughs> and uh, she was very much a middle class, privileged middle class, uh, white Victorian woman. Uh, she had six children. She was very devout. She came from Baptist royalty, although extraordinarily, and I never discovered the reason for this, she joined the Church of England in her 60s. Very surprising and never found the answer to that. She married when she was 20 to Sam and they wrote to each other several times a day for almost all of their marriage. He died in the early 1920s. Um, and But what was fascinating was that I knew there was someone in my family who wrote. That was how it was presented. It certainly was never presented as a profession or something that was visible or significant. But what I discovered was that my great grandmother wrote 14 novels. She was a really well-known novelist in her day. Uh, she wrote hundreds of articles for girls' own paper, uh, which became woman's own. Uh, she was uh, very active in the education board, very active in the uh, Baptist church. She wrote children's stories, she wrote devotional poetry. And yet, it's as if she never existed as a writer. None of her works are in print. Her name doesn't appear in any biographies of Victorian writers. Um, it was really hard finding any trace of her in the world at all. I inherited from one of my cousins a great trunk of letters from Lily to Sam and a few others to other people, including my own dad, and that was wonderful. <laughs> um, but they were entirely domestic and personal. So all of the great things of the day, what she thought about things, nothing is there. Um, the thing that was interesting was discovering, and this is another challenge of history, as you know, um, that she was violently opposed to women's suffrage. She didn't think that women needed the vote. And she felt that by giving women the vote, um, women would lose their privileged position in society. Now, of course, women like her, that that's a possibly accurate assessment, but that's not representative for most women. You know, women need to have that. So these things are very interesting because I think, God, you know, if we'd met, we would have had these really interesting conversations. Uh, we thought very similarly about some things. Her novels are grounded in landscape, as are mine. Um, she very much believes that a story happens only where it's set. And whether that's the Jura Mountains or Yorkshire Rawdon that she put on the page as the um, imagined Langthwaite in her most famous novel, The Vicar of Langthwaite. Um, and so I had to unpick all of these things. And if anybody um, listening, you know, I, I discovered that genealogy became the most important hobby for many people during lockdown. And so it was for me that I had time to do this. But it's it's really hard tracing women's lives when they're not well known because women marry and they change their names. Um, much of the information put online is put there by family members and it's not right, you know, uh -huh. right down to dates of death and dates of birth and how many children people have got. So it was a real labour of love. And in the show, I put Lily, very, Lily is very much on the stage with me. Um, and, you know, at certain points, Charlie, I had to say to myself, would, we have, would I have liked her? Would she have liked me? And then you have to step back again and think that's not the point. The point is recording faithfully, insofar as you can, a woman's life that has been lost from the record. Um, and I feel that I've, I've made a start on that. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's wonderful. You really do bring her to life so beautifully. Um I mean, in terms of whether you'd get on, like you say, she's a Victorian privileged woman. You, you come from you know, different times, different experiences. And we all like, I think we all like to think we'd be out pounding the pavement in our, our green and our, our white and our purple being suffragettes. But I guess for her and for, for women who were comfortably married and had a nice husband, because they seem to have a really lovely relationship. Yeah. Yes, they really do. I, I, you know, it's difficult in the part when you're looking back at the past, and it's easy to look through rose tinted glasses. And also, I know that my dad was very fond of his granny. um, And I knew my and I and I loved my granny very much. And she was the beloved youngest child of that family. So I know that there was something that must have been wonderful about her because people that I know and love loved her. Uh, There was never any like, oh, you know, um, and, and of course, I never really talked to them about her because this has all happened and they're both gone now. Both my granny and my, my beloved dad are gone. But when I look at the letters, it seems to me that they genuinely loved each other. They wrote many times a day. They wrote with great affection. Um, and when Sam dies in 1921, after that, of course, there's much less record. I have uh, letters from her to my aunt and my dad. Uh, but very little else because that was their relationship, Sam and Lily. And um, they were, they were, I think a, it was a wonderful love match, I think. The pictured um, messages that, that Lily sends to her grandchildren, I think are absolutely charming. Yeah, the pictograms. Yes, exactly. She loved all of that. And of course, that was very, again, a very middle-class pastime, those kind of... Uh, riddles and jokes and all of those things that was that was very much the way that people talk to children then so uh yes I so regret that I didn't have time to look into Lily's life when my dad was still alive um because I now of course really kick myself for not asking him about her but of course you again you can't do everything and you can't do everything at the same time (laughs) so when it comes to magnifying women's voices the Women's Prize for Fiction has been recently joined by the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. Now, with a very heavy dose of sarcasm here, Kate, are these really necessary in 2023? Surely women's writing is as widely read and respected as men's by now. <laughs> I love your, your upward lilt in that question. <laughs> um, well, one of the reasons we're launching the Women's Prize for Nonfiction is that only a quarter of books reviewed are by women. So yes, 
very straightforwardly. When I was setting up the Women's Prize for Fiction 28 years ago, everybody told me that we didn't need it. And I would put the figures before them and say, well, do you know that only 9% of novels ever shortlisted for major literary prizes by women, despite the fact that 60% of novels published are by women? So there has never been an issue about women's work getting to market, if you like, or at least some women's work getting to market. But the issue has been about its valuing and uh, honouring as literature. So there is still this rather lovely, I mean, quite naive idea that literature is neutral. And when you kind of decode that, what it means is that it's white men. Uh, there is no such thing as a, a non-authored text in that, in that kind of way. So yes, it is still needed. But on the other hand, I suppose spin the question on its head. Should we celebrate amazing writing? Yes. Why would we stop? Why would we stop doing that? And I'm afraid, as, as we said earlier, uh, current history tells us that the gains made in terms of women and men being treated equally and having equal rights goes backwards as well as forwards. We always need to keep saying that women's voices matter as much as men. Before the Taliban went into Kabul in August, 1920, um, you know, in August 2021, there were more women in the Afghan parliament than any other parliament in the world. Crazy. That was lost in 36 hours. <sighs> I've been a feminist campaigner all of my grown up life. And I did not believe that I would see Roe v. Wade in America go in my lifetime. I felt that was done. Now, this is a literary prize. This is not a political organization. It's not a campaigning organization, except that ensuring that every year quality work by women in fiction and now nonfiction is heard we can see that you need to keep doing it because if you don't, the rights that have been gained will be lost. And I would say that every single male reader I know feels the same. You know, every single man I talk to about Warrior Queen's uh, the book and now the show feels the same. Patriarchy is a thing. It's a, it's a political uh, structure that benefits no women and almost no men. Yeah, It's about the very tiny number of people in power who wish to hold on to power. Um, so, you know, we know why there was opposition to the Equal Pay Act. It wasn't ideological. It was to do with the bottom line. Owners, business owners didn't want to pay more. Simple as that. Now, there is ideological opposition to women, and we are seeing that in certain parts of the world, and that's always existed. And it goes around and it comes around. And, um, you know, we are witnessing femicide in Afghanistan. Uh, recently, there has been a new edict that uh, women cannot be treated by male doctors, but there's also an edict that women can't be doctors. So that is actively a death sentence for women. So that is different from, you know, the, the environment that many of us are fortunate to live in at the moment. But that's why, again, we need to keep raising our voices and saying that women's voices matter, because who knows what women in Afghanistan uh, are seeing or not seeing, uh, women in Ukraine, uh, women in Iran, um, and all sorts of countries, this is, it's not about those countries in particular, it's just that they are vi visible at the moment. So we need to keep saying women's voices should be heard equally as men's voices. And of course, if they're not reviewed in the, the literary sort of supplements of your Sunday paper, people don't know that those books are there. Therefore, they don't go out and buy those books. They don't read those books. They don't hear those voices. So it's this That's exactly right. It's a virtuous circle, if you like, when, when you put the voices back. 
And in the case of our nonfiction prize, it's about uh, women as experts. Mm. And that, of course, plays right back into Warrior Queens, all of the extraordinary uh, women of law, of science, of invention who have been forgotten. Um, but they were there too. And, you know, you may know this, um, but until the great uh, polymath, I would say, um, Mary Somerville, the word scientist didn't exist. It was coined precisely for Mary Somerville, because before that there had only been men of science. And then there was Mary Somerville. And what did they call her? <laughs> there we go. So that's where the word scientist comes from. <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. Now, I'm guessing all of these amazing anecdotes and more. You're heading off on tour around the country, taking warrior women and quiet revolutionaries to the people. So tell us about the show. Um, where can where can our listeners find out where you'll be? Where can they get tickets? I, I notice you're going everywhere, so I won't ask you to... Well, I'm not going everywhere. There's a lot of Scottish people have said, why am I not going into Scotland? And I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> Theatres are available at this moment. So it's this is pretty much with one uh, foray into Brecon. Um, it's England this time, but if all goes well, then we will be taking. I will be taking the show um, to Scotland and to Ireland, and in fact, even possibly to Australia and New Zealand. And obviously, I will slightly shift who's in the show depending on where I am. I really, I'm starting a new career at the age of sixty-one, and as a stand-up performer. Um, now, this <laughs> might be a disaster. It might be. Uh, brilliant success. I am really looking forward to it. Um, it's a proper show with music and projection and lights and an interval and Maltesers and Prosecco, if you fancy it. Okay, Merchandise. <laughs> you know, it's all very exciting. And it's a theatre producer just said, you know, this, this book is amazing. What about a show where you kind of put some of the stories of these incredible women on display? And so we've had great fun choosing all the props, uh, choosing all the music and the soundscape. Wow. Uh, so it's a, my aim was to make a proper night out in the theatre. It's for mums and their sons. It's for fathers and their daughters. It's for girls and it's for boys. It's for everybody. Um, it's, you know, it's a proper family show. It's celebration. Um, lots of the fun facts I've shared with you, but also just putting, you know, a, a bit more attention on some of the, the, the people that are in the books. For example, the great English footballer Lily Parr. Uh, who should be a household name. Uh, we're in a period of enormous renaissance for uh, ladies' football. The Lionesses are making our hearts sing. I'm a big football fan, but I didn't know that Lily Parr, the great Lily Parr, who started playing when she was a teenager, uh, between 1919 and 1951, scored a 1,000 goals. Uh, she's the only woman who's got a statue at the uh, Football Museum in Preston. She comes from St. Helens. And pretty much every munitions factory, which was staffed by women in the First World War, had a ladies' football team. And it was so successful that the Football Association banned it. So when I grew up in the 70s, 60s and 70s, with people saying, yeah, but there's no women's football because nobody wants to watch it. So imagine my surprise when I discovered that the Goodison Park Boxing Day match in 1920, maybe as many as 48,000 people were there. And then the FA decided to ban it the next year because they didn't want the competition with the men's game. And so that's what I love about history, that you think you know history and then you discover something else and it turns everything on its head. Uh, so you'll meet everybody coming along to the show. Um, I start in Stafford on the 28th of February, I finish in Salford at the Lowry on the 12th of April. 
I'm going to Crewe and to Doncaster and to Bury St Edmunds and to Bristol and to Leamington Spa and to High Wycombe and to Newbury. Um, so all the dates, um, it's quite punishing. Um, I did the Graham Norton show a couple of weeks ago and he said, oh, it's not for the faint hearted. And I thought, no, you know, I'm, I'm already thinking, blimey, you know, I'm an early to bed, early to rise kind of a woman. <laughs> Uh, so the fact that I normally go to bed at half past eight and that's only when the interval will be happening is filling me with slight trepidation. Um, so if you go onto my website, uh, which is uh, www.katemoss, uh, or one word with an e, .co.uk forward slash events, um, all of the theatres are there and um, easy links to book tickets. So come along. It really is a show for everybody. And I want people to be leaving the theatre uh, toe tapping, going, God, I never knew that. Um, God, I've never heard of that person. Um, and I, I really want this to be a conversation starter. So come along, the more, the merrier. Fantastic. Well, just as we've been talking, my husband, who shares an office with me, has handed me this note. She's doing Northampton, Wednesday, the 5th of April. We should go. <laughs> That's so Brilliant. genuine. Northampton. I should have said Northampton. I couldn't say them all. There's 32 dates. <laughs> we will be there and we'll, we'll of course, share links um, through the History Hack channels for everybody who wants to come. Now, before I let you go, Kate, I've got to ask you because we're going to have people listening who want to know the most basic question I'm sure you get asked all the time. But you're an incredibly successful historical novelist. What advice do you have? for any aspiring historical novelists who might be listening? Well, that's a lovely last question. And actually, I'll be giving a few hints during the show because, of course, most people know me as a, a fiction writer. Um, but I would say you've got to really love and know the period of history in which you're going to set your story. And I mean that by not just because you've seen a film set then, that you know, <laughs> you've done your own research into the texture of life into what it would have like, been like or what it would have felt like to live then. So that's the first thing. Great sense of place. Um, my experiences from what my own readers tell me that uh, readers of historical fiction love that kind of atmosphere. They want to feel that they're there in, you know, my current series of books is kind of uh, 16th and 17th century. My latest novel, The Ghost Ship, which is essentially Lady Pirates, uh, lesbian pirates, indeed. Let's read about the book. Um, people want to know what would they have felt if they'd been there at the time. So that level of research and that sense of place is very important. But then I think the most important thing is what is your story? It shouldn't be a regurgitation of the history that you know. All of my stories are imagined characters set against the backdrop of real history. And all the research is there as your stage set, if you like. But ask yourself, what is my story? What makes this story different? Who is my character that readers will fall in love with? And, you know, if, um, if people are really interested in knowing more about this, then I am teaching an online course for K Curtis Brown Creative. Uh, so if you go to the Curtis Brown Creative website, you will see my online course on historical fiction. Um, and it's a five week course and it's available to anybody, men and women, anybody who wants to know a bit more about it. And it was very interesting for me putting the course together because it did make me ask myself those questions about what is it that works and what doesn't work. Um, so in the end, you've got to believe in yourself, believe you've got a story to tell, know your history, know your background and then close your eyes and jump. 
it's all about the imagination. So don't get pulled down by research. Use it as a springboard to set your imagination free. And good luck. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Kate Moss, your beautiful book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, is available now. Buy the book. You won't regret it. Get yourself tickets to the tour. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you very much, Charlie. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.